I don't think I need to tell most of you that we live in a wicked world that is growing more and more wicked. Indeed, I would suggest to you that there are very diabolical people who are actually plotting the demise of our freedoms and are actively seeking to eliminate Christianity and Christians. These people actually want the chaos that we see around us. They want the failure of freedom. Others in greater number are simply convinced that the policies advocated by these wicked others are the best way to go about human thriving. Now, it is very hard to tell which person is a wicked plotter and which person is simply duped into thinking that these wrong ideas are right ones. We cannot know. Oftentimes, they themselves don't know. But these two categories of people exist side by side in our society. As Christians, we watch the quick pace with which our culture is sinking into failure, hatred, and wickedness, and we wonder, how can the true Christian live in a wicked world? This morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, where we're going to look at how the gospel helps the true Christian to live in a wicked world. Titus chapter 3. Now, my introduction is going to be un, perhaps longer than normal, but in case you doubt that there is an organized and relentless plan of wickedness, and that there are also dupes who believe that wickedness is actually goodness, I want to bring to you some sayings this morning of Vladimir Lenin. He was the first and founding head of government of Soviet Russia, and a couple of years later, the Soviet Union. <clears throat> now, my my goal in presenting these sayings of Lenin is threefold. First, I want you to know that what is happening in our culture is neither accidental nor new. It is the determined plan of many. Second, I want you to feel the pain of these matters. <clears throat> now, you could perhaps be even aroused to frustration and anger this, we will see, is an obvious but actually wrong response. Thirdly, I want you to see that the Apostle Paul anticipates that the true Christian living in such a world will have trouble figuring out how to respond to this wickedness. And so, here in Titus chapter 3, 1 through 7, the Apostle Paul will give clear instruction on how the gospel helps the true Christian to live in a wicked world. Let's look at some of these things that Vladimir Lenin said. On creating deceit and confusion, 
We live in a world of deceit and increasing confusion, don't we? Here's what Lenin said. People always have been and they always will be stupid victims of deceit and self-deception in politics. He's actually advocating there for deception as a political means. As an ultimate objective, he says, peace simply means communist world control. When When you say the word peace, that's what should be intended by it. Pacifism, the preaching of peace in the abstract, is one of the means of duping the working class. And here's something he said nearly a hundred years ago, which you hear today all over in political campaigns. America has become one of the foremost countries in regard to the depth of the abyss which lies between the handful of arrogant millionaires who wallow in filth and luxury and the millions of working people who constantly live on the verge of pauperism. The idea of envy as a means to creating deceit and confusion. Lenin also said some things about hatred. We live in a world of increasing hatred toward one another. Uh, Here's what Lenin said, we must hate. Hatred is the basis of communism. Children must be taught to hate their parents if they are not communists. It is, of course, much easier to shout, abuse, and howl than to attempt to relate, to explain. What he means by that is create an environment where there's lots of howling and shouting and abusing. That's a, it's a political end. We can and we must write in a language which sows among the masses hate, revulsion, and scorn toward those who disagree with us. It is necessary, secretly and urgently, to prepare the terror. Those who are opposed to armed uprising must be ruthlessly kicked out as enemies, traitors, and cowards. And then this is what he said about democracy. It's a state which recognizes the subjection of the minority to the majority. That is an organization for the systematic use of violence by one class against the other, by one part of the population against another. So that democracy is actually, in his mind, a tool of violence. And that's exactly what we're reading about in these days. Lenin on the politics of economics. The way to crush the bourgeoisie is to grind them between the millstones of taxation and inflation. The best way to destroy the capitalist system is to debauch the currency. On freedoms, why should freedom of speech and freedom of press be allowed? Why should a government which is doing what it believes to be right allow itself to be criticized? It would not allow opposition by lethal weapons. Ideas are much more fatal things than guns. Why should any man be allowed to buy a printing press and disseminate pernicious opinions calculated to embarrass the government? When one makes a revolution, one cannot mark time. One must always go forward or go back. He who now talks about the freedom of the press goes backward and halts our headlong course toward socialism. Free speech is a bourgeois prejudice. One man with a gun can control 100 without one. In advocating for gun control, you must act with all energy, mass searches, execution for concealing arms. Lenin on the necessity of atheism. 
Atheism is a natural and inseparable part of Marxism, of the theory and practice of scientific socialism. Our program necessarily includes the propaganda of atheism. And lastly, Lenin on the importance of the indoctrination of youth. And these are statements made over several years, so he changes the numbers, but he's saying essentially the same thing. Give me just one generation of youth and I'll transform the whole world. Give us the child for eight years and it will be a Bolshevik forever. Give me four years to teach the children and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. Give me a child for the first year, five years of his life, and he will be mine forever. these can arouse in us a wrong spirit, though. We see our society crumbling around us and may feel the urge to anger, superiority, vengeance, or even violence. It is just here that Paul's words to Titus to a young man seeking to oversee a group of churches in an extremely pagan and evil Cretan society, that Paul's words are so deeply practical, meaningful, and authoritative. What we are about to read is instruction from God's word on how the gospel helps the true Christian to live in a wicked world. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning? Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Please have a seat. Verses 1 through 2 here tell us that living self-controlled godly lives requires seven reminders of how true Christians live. 
He begins this section with the words, remind them. Remind them. (laughs) It's so easy to forget. It's not like these church members in Crete had never received instruction like this before. It's that the world around them kept fomenting in its wickedness And it's easy to lose your head. It's easy to forget how to live, how to allow the gospel to inform your life. It's easy to forget who we are. It's easy to forget whose we are, especially when things that we dearly love are being torn down in the name of progress. Now, in case you think that our situation here in the United States of America in the 21st century is unique and that the Scriptures have nothing to say to this current moment, I want to share with you just a sentence from the Roman historian Polybius about the situation in Crete as Paul was writing to Titus on the island of Crete. Here's what Polybius said, Cretans were constantly involved in, quote, insurrections, murders, and internecine wars. That's the situation that Paul is writing to Titus and to these Cretan believers. It's a a world that's even worse, if you can imagine it, than the world we inhabit. Insurrections, murders, internecine wars. And Paul tells Titus to remind them seven things. First, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be submissive to rulers and authorities. It doesn't say to be submissive to rulers and authorities as long as they agree with you. What does it mean to be submissive? It's it's repeated through the New Testament, right? Romans 13 tells us to do this. 1 Peter 2 tells us to do this. It means that we need to tell the whole truth about rulers and authorities, not just the digested, edited parts that either cause us to think favorably of one and disfavorably of another. And immediately you're thinking of the question, well, what constitutes a reason not to be submissive? And I'll tell you, according to Acts 5.29, that whenever God's laws contradict human law, of course God's law supersedes human law. But even then, even then we are not to be triumphantly or proudly defiant. We should be firm in our convictions of the authority of Scripture over our lives but we also need to be kind. You might ask, what about? There's all kinds of what abouts we're asking these days, aren't there? What about the ruler who attacks other Christians? Doesn't say, be submissive rulers and authorities as long as they're kind to Christians. What about the ruler who is killing other citizens? It doesn't say, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities who aren't killing other citizens. It does not say that. What about the ruler who is telling the church what to do and what not to do? Nothing mentioned there. The only caveat 
in the Scriptures is where God's law contradicts human law, we must disobey the human law. But we are to be submissive to rulers and authorities. In fact, the second principle goes even further, to be obedient. You know why this is hard for us? Because when many laws, and there are many laws that are unjust, when many laws are unjust, it's easier to justify disobeying them, aren't they? When there's an unjust law, doesn't it make you want to disobey? You feel that just about every April 15th, don't you? When many people then disobey the law, not you, mind you, but when there's a whole bunch of people disobeying the law, doesn't that dilute your own affection for obeying it? If everybody else is disobeying it, doesn't it make you want to disobey it too? I'll tell you a story. Carol and I used to live in Bolivia in South America, and from time to time we would take an early taxi to the airport to take an early flight out of La Paz. At 4.30 in the morning, the taxis would drive straight through the red lights without even slowing down. Just, you know why? Because when there's nobody around in La Paz, traffic lights are optional. Now, what would happen here in central Illinois if just 10% of people decided that traffic lights were optional? It would mean chaos, right? There would be no obedience to the law whatsoever. Everything would go crazy. You see, what happens, why this is hard to obey is that when many laws are unjust, it's easier to justify disobeying them. And when many people disobey the law, it's easier to disobey them. And when those who disobey the law are not punished, it's easier to disobey the law as well. The Scripture tells us to be obedient. You might say, well, what does, what, what, what's the definition of obedience? What does it mean to obey? Well, I'll just share with you some words that I shared with my boys when they were little. The first verse I ever had them memorize was Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's just boom, right? And obedience requires three things. Do it all do it now, and do it with the right heart attitude. And as believers, Paul is saying, even in an increasingly wicked world, we should be characterized by doing it all, doing it now, and doing it with the right heart attitude. The third principle here is to be ready for every good work, to look for opportunities to put Christ on display, to do everything we can for the flourishing of our society, to be ready to serve and to work and to be able to give blessing to those around us. To speak evil of no one, not to slander them, not to exaggerate, Note the absolute here, to speak evil of no one. Your neighbor is made in God's image even when he or she is totally wrong. Speak evil of no one. 
to avoid quarreling. We live in a contentious time, don't we? People seem to love a fight, love a quarrel, seek to avoid the contention, to be gentle. Even where there is disagreement, seek to be gentle. These six items then, I think, are defined by the very last one. Grammatically, it's written in a different way in Greek, the language that Paul wrote to Titus. And so we're told to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. And then this last one kind of oversees it all, showing perfect courtesy toward all people a phrase which seems to define all of the other six. This word courtesy is often translated in other English translations as meekness. We have lost the art of meekness. Now, as you've heard the old saw, if you've been a Christian very long, meekness is not weakness. Moses was described as the meekest man who ever lived. That doesn't mean he was perfect. But Moses was a man who not only was a strong leader, but he was a strong leader ever, only, always for God, not for himself. He saw clearly not to build his own kingdom, but to seek God and his kingdom. Watch how you behave the next time that you fail in this, showing perfect courtesy to all people, and you'll discover as you ask yourself the question, now why was I not courteous? You'll discover what I've found all too often true of myself. The reason I was not courteous was that my kingdom was being violated, and I didn't like that. You know, we imitate Jesus when we show this courtesy, this meekness. Jesus said in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. It's the word meek, and you'll find rest for your souls. In Matthew 21, 5, behold, your king is coming to you, meek and mounted on a donkey. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You know, we're called to live this way as Christians. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 includes this meekness, this perfect courtesy Toward one another, Galatians 6.1 says, if any is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, perfect courtesy, kindness. In Ephesians chapter 4, which is the introduction to the practical section of Ephesians, the first three chapters talking about the theology that 
is the bedrock foundation of how, who we are in Christ, in God's new society, the church. He be, opens the, the, the practical section by saying, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with all meekness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, perfect courtesy toward one another in the church. He reiterates that in Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, these rotten stuff, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, meekness, perfect courtesy. James says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom, courtesy. Peter tells women in the church, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a meek and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious, perfect courtesy. And in our evangelism, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 15, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness, courtesy, meekness, and respect. Now you might say, why? Why should we do all this when these people who are doing this to our society are either dupes or are purposefully trying to destroy us? It makes me mad. Why should I behave in these ways? I'm glad you asked the question. Verses 3 through 5 give the answer. We live kindly toward others. Not because they deserve it, but because we know that we don't deserve God's grace. We needed saving. What we once were reveals that we don't have anything to throw our weight around over. In verse 3, some of the English translations leave out the word for, for we ourselves were once foolish. Some translations like the ESV leaves out the word also, and we need both of them in there, for we ourselves also were once foolish. We too, we're not any different than those folks that we are getting angry at, who are either dupes or purposely trying to destroy us. We're no different than them. We too once were, listen to who we are, once were, Foolish, unintelligent, not in gray matter, but foolish in wisdom matters. Senseless, akin to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's what we too once were. We were disobedient, disobedient to God, 
because we were inclined to sin, led astray, fooled by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We too were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Romans 6, beginning at verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." We have to consider what we once were, brothers and sisters. Foolish, senseless, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, spending our lives in ill will and dissatisfaction, thinking that it's always somebody else's fault that my life isn't perfect and constantly reminding myself of all the ways in which I am dissatisfied with life and it's somebody else's fault. That's how we once also, also lived our lives. Reminds me of the verses that we began our service with. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then two more, hated by others and hating one another. Just this sense of contention that exists, hated by others and feeling the the sense of injustice over that, but then that just leads to everybody hating each other. That's the end of the line, isn't it? Which is a pretty good description of social media these days. So, we live kindly toward others, not because they deserve it, but because we know we don't deserve God's grace. Just let it settle in on you what you once were. Verse 4, but when. Aren't those two great words? But when... And you might say, but when we got our act together, that's not what it says. Or, but when I finally saw stuff, or when I read this book, or when I, you know, whatever. No, 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 it's not any of that. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... We too were all of this way that everybody who's trying to destroy our society is now living. We too were that. But the loving kindness and goodness of God appeared. And that word appeared is the same word that's found in chapter 2 verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. It's exactly the same word. God's grace appeared, his goodness appeared, his loving kindness, which we get the word philanthropy from, this just big gift 
big gift from God showed up. And the key clause of the sentence is the first three words of verse 5. Can you read them aloud with me? He saved us. He saved us. We too were all of this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, He saved us. I didn't save myself. I didn't contribute to the salvation. It wasn't me and God working together. It wasn't in a way in which I could say, there's anything I contributed. I was lost. I was dead. He saved us. And in case you didn't get that, look at the rest of verse 5. Not because of, not because of works of righteousness done by us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not because of any works we had done. The source is not in us. So as believers, we need to get off of our high horse of moral superiority here. Just slow down, Turbo. (laughs) Right? Slow down a little bit. Think that we're the morally superior ones? No, no, no. Not because of works we had done. But, look at the word but there. It's a really important word. But, according to His own mercy. Not about we, it's about His. The basis of salvation is God's mercy. The means of that salvation is found at the end of verse 5. The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We were dead, we were blind, We were deaf, and God made dead bones come to life because He's good and He gives good undeservedly. That's that's the gospel. And He sent the Holy Spirit to make us alive and to renew us in every way, to renew our minds to renew how we think, to renew our affections, to renew our priorities. Now we see things way more clearly than we ever saw. And we're like, well, how did I miss it? It's so obvious now. (laughs) It's the work of the precious Holy Spirit. We live kindly toward others, not because they deserve it, but because we know that we don't deserve God's grace. We look at people around us, and rather than living with the kind of like, they're the enemy, we need to say, there's no difference essentially between me and them except for the fact that God did something. Verses six and seven, the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ's gift to us so that salvation can be ours from beginning to end. I want you to notice the work of the Trinity on our behalf here. Don't take this lightly. Verse 4, 
God the Father's goodness and loving kindness appeared. Then the word he in verse 5 is God the Father. God the Father saved us according to his own mercy. Second half of verse 5, God the Father did this by means of the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He caused the Holy Spirit to do something in our lives, in making us new, causing us to come to life. And verse 6, God the Father poured out the Spirit on us richly. How? Through Jesus Christ our Savior. God's described as our Savior in verse 4, God the Father. Jesus Christ is described as our Savior in verse 6. The Trinity, the triune God, is at work on our behalf. Every true Christian has the Holy Spirit poured out on him or her. Every true church has the Holy Spirit poured out on its members. And don't overlook the word richly in verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Uh, If you've ever been to Europe and tried to get a soft drink like a Coca-Cola, you end up bitterly disappointed because you pay 5 to $10 and you get this little thing of Coca-Cola, you just go, and it's, it's gone, you know. I, I much prefer the good old United States of America where when you order a soft drink, you get a cup, right? That you think, man, they should invent new cup holders in cars to fit the cup that I buy, right? <clears throat> the word richly. God did not pour out the Spirit of God on us in a European Coca-Cola way, but in a good old patriotic USA kind of way, right? He poured out His Spirit on us richly over and over so that you now think in ways that the non-Christian, the person that doesn't know Jesus, looks at you and thinks you're a total foreigner. You know why? Because you are. You're a citizen of heaven. And you look at them, and you can look at them as a total foreigner. You know why? Because the Spirit of God has been poured out richly upon you so that your mind and your eyes see and hear and feel and know things that are completely different from that person. But let's not get into moral superiority here. It's not like we are the the arbiters of that. I don't know. The way we behave toward a world is to say, to look with tears. Like Jesus looked on the crowds. When he looked on the crowds, he had compassion on them because he saw them as sheep not having a shepherd. And so as believers, we live in a different way than the world lives. Verse 7, Jesus' sacrifice then at the cross enables us to be justified by God's grace, made right, put in a right standing with God, and to inherit divine blessing according to the hope of eternal life. So let me summarize in one sentence this work of the Trinity that we have seen here. God the Father 
pours out the Holy Spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ. That's the Trinity at work on our behalf. And the goal is that we might become heirs of the glories of eternity, the glories of God's eternal kingdom. We are inheritors. Galatians 4 says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Think about it, the infinite personal God of the universe who has always existed and forever will, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, we call him Abba, Father. And he has granted to us, for reasons we cannot totally comprehend, He has granted us an inheritance in his eternal kingdom where we share with Jesus Christ the King all of the riches of heaven. Romans chapter 8, if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Why is this? It's because of being justified by God's grace. And we are heirs according to the standard of the hope of eternal life. None of the rulers, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And so this morning, I want to make two very clear invitations. First, there are some here in this room who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Your eyes are blind, you cannot see, your ears are deaf, you cannot hear, and you are dead, dead in your sin, and are doomed to an eternity in hell. But there's good news. The good news is that the loving kindness and goodness of God has been poured out The Holy Spirit is prompting, opening eyes, making people new, creating faith, and it may be that the Holy Spirit is doing that work right now in your heart. Will you receive him by faith? Say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know it's not everybody else's fault. (laughs) And that's what we do, don't we? Everything in the world is somebody else's fault. It's the rich people's fault. It's this person's fault. It's my parents' fault. No, no, no. Open your eyes to see it's my fault. And I run from my sin and I run to the cross. Jesus, forgive me by what you did at the cross. And Holy Spirit, wash me. Cleanse me from my sin and make me new from the inside out. Bible promises whoever calls upon the name of the Lord that way, whoever will be saved. Doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done. Doesn't matter whether you've been, quote unquote, a good, lawful person in your life, or if you've been a complete and total rebel. It doesn't matter because we're all in the same boat before God without hope. 
but the kindness and goodness of God has appeared and it's good news for you. Trust Jesus now. And then for those of us who are believers, the world, I don't believe, is going to get better. I don't believe that people who are apart from Christ can somehow pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and improve. The gospel helps you to live in a wicked world. Don't get angry. Don't speak evil. Do not quarrel. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy to everyone. Why? Because where those folks are is where you and I once were. I leave you with one more quote from Lenin. I disagree with almost everything he says. I agree with this one. The most important thing when ill is to never lose heart. Lenin, if you read anything of his life, you'll know that he just didn't give up. The guy just didn't give up. For a, a diabolical lie, he didn't give up. As Christians who have possession of these tremendous truths, let us not grow weary in doing well. Let us not lose heart. Let us instead be ambassadors for the king who's coming back. And we will be heirs. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good word. Forgive us for where we have failed in these things. And make us new and different by your Spirit's work in our lives. The things we see around us tempt us to anger, frustration. Help us not to be that way. Help us to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, ready for every good work, speaking evil of no one, avoiding quarreling, being gentle, showing perfect courtesy toward all people. We too were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of you, God, our Savior, appeared, you saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to your own mercy, by that washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit that you poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. By the merits of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.